All right. Well, we are on part two of a series we're calling Wear Love here at Eastlake. If this is your first time checking us out, welcome. We're so glad that you made it. Uh, we are a church. People don't typically like church, uh, which I know sounds counterintuitive a little bit, but uh, we, we've, uh, when we started a few years ago, there were people like, I like this finally. What's the, what's the deal with this? And, and do, now that I like it, can I not come? Because I'm, I'm not supposed to be. And we're like, I don't know how that all works, but you should still come. So, um, uh, and then we teach in series here, and we started a series last week, but it was uh, snowing pretty bad last week, and so uh, you probably weren't here. Uh, I was, and uh, like 10 people were, so that was awesome. It was really, really great. Thank you for those of you who came. So if you missed last week, you can go check it out um, at eastlaketricities.com slash talks. But uh, we started the series last week, and uh, we, we said uh, it was a familiar term uh, that we've used around Eastlake before, but wanted to put some, some flesh on a little bit, this idea of wearing love. And typically, the, the verbiage has been used for us in our vision of how we do outreach and how we think out beyond the walls of this church. So uh, we do things uh, as a community. We do things for like internal stuff. And then we do all, anything that we do for other people is always kind of wear love. So a soul soup thing or a second harvest thing, or, or we do these wear love initiatives where if you come as a guest, we donate money to different organizations, uh, well projects in developing countries, uh, orphanages in Haiti, yada, 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 the list um, goes on. Um, and then one of the things that we uh, figured out a little while back was uh, that we, uh, as good as we are, or we think we are in the outreach portion of how we do church, uh, the discipleship portion has been kind of a little bit of a struggle. Like, what do we do? How do people grow at Eastlake? And uh, the, the refrain that keeps coming up over and over again from our leadership team is, I feel like I've grown the most when I've sort of engaged the most. When I've been able to do stuff with what I have, not just, it's not like filling out, you know, getting all the answers so that I can fill out a quiz and hopefully when I get to heaven, I'm, I'm a good test taker and I can make that thing happen. But doing something with what I believe has been kind of for us about the best pathway for, and right, the best, not a pathway, but like the best pathway for us to be able to go. So we feel like it's our responsibility, like as a leadership team, to make it really easy and obvious for you to be able to do something with the faith that you have. So in, to live out what we call an engaged faith. So where love, a series on engaged faith. And the reason we said that engaged or use that terminology is because we recognized last week that you can be for something emotionally and yet be completely disengaged in that thing. Uh, you can be for the idea of being married and yet still be disengaged in the marriage. And your wife or your husband goes, what's up? What, what's wrong with us? Why, why are we acting like this? Do you, do you even want to be married? Do you even love me anymore? You're like, no, I'm so for us. I'm for the idea of us. And yet I can't explain why I'm disengaged in it. And so engagement is such a critical uh, piece in this. And we said um, that uh, there are a couple of anchor points for us that, um, uh, that are uh, at the core of our wear love strategy. So I'm going to give them to you. And, and this isn't like something I have to convince you of. You probably live or these things might resonate with you naturally, even if you've never been a part of Eastlake and, and, and maybe don't even identify as a Christian. But we, we recognized this last week, that love is something that you do. It's not a feeling that I have for you. Love is something that you do. It, it, it elicits a response. It's not the absence of hate. It's the absence of indifference. When you say to somebody, well, I don't hate you, that doesn't mean I love you. When I say I'm, I'm, I, it's the absence of indifference, I refuse to be indifferent to, to how you live your life and how you do your things, that's love. And then love is something that you never stop doing. We looked at Paul's letter to a, a church in Rome, chapters 12 and 13, where it really illustrates this out and le leads us out. And he starts with the indicative. He starts about who we are in Christ, chapters one through 11. And then in chapter 12, he begins with like, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but do something different. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he goes into an exposition about love and it shows up in these three things. So these three, 
three things resonate with you. And I think that they really do for a lot of people because you can be like, hey, I'm not even a Christian. I don't know about the whole Jesus thing. But when I read these things or when I hear these things or I see these on Instagram or I hear these in Oscar's acceptance speech or whatever, I'm like, I'm for that. Like, I'm for these things. This is great. This is, this is if those things resonate with you, uh, then, then we said, like, we, that should inspire you to be able to do, to become engaged. We want your faith to inspire you to action based on these sorts of things. Now, uh, at the end of last week's talk, I promised to address probably the most common reaction to last week's talk. And it was essentially this question right here. Has Brent been working out? The answer is yes, and thank you for noticing. So that's Really great. No, I'm just kidding. The, the, the response that like, generated the most response was when, when I stand in front of you and be like, all right, love, you know, love requires that you do something. Love is something that you do and you never stop doing. Immediately a response is, oh my God, I'm so busy. In my season, like, Brent, if you are asking me to currently do more, time is the most valuable asset that I have right now. I've got kids, I just started a business, I just started a new job, we just got married, I'm a newlywed. Um, There there are so many different factors going on. For you to stand up there and sell me a product of, all right, we've got Soup Kitchen Thursdays and free volunteer workforce on Saturdays, you're like, I'm out, like I, I don't know that I can do, and that's a very real feeling and we anticipated that as a response. Um, so that's why we said you need to come back this week and hear it because we get it. Listen, Kylie and I get it more, uh, not even, I'm not going to say more so than you. That's like, that's, that's one of those things that everybody thinks they're more busy than the other person. Everybody thinks that they're busy. It's cool to feel busy. And then somebody comes up to you and they're like, I'm so busy. You're like, ha, you, <laughs> you have one kid. How are you busy? You have no kids. How are you? I'm, you're single. You, you're, you have, you, you have so much time. What are you talking about? Everybody feels incredibly busy. Uh, and it, it, it's interesting because we're amazed at other people's blind spots when it comes to like really how not busy they are in comparison to how busy I am, right? Uh, and you think to yourself, somebody should like set them straight, but like not me, I'm like a bit busy for that sort of thing, so I can't really do that. So we anticipate that, we know that, and Kylie and I really do feel like, I'm um, just like honestly, we feel like we are generous in are in giving ourselves away, unsustainably really at times, and it comes up in conversation. And we think about oftentimes too, like what if our kids grow up resenting ministry? Because there's like this pattern for pastors, because I'm not sure if you're aware of this, where a lot of times they either like, they, they, uh, they, they're very rarely indifferent to church. They're like usually for it and they become like, the, they, they become the, uh, uh, pastor themselves, or they fall really far from the tree and they're like, I hate church. I got to see the backside of a church. I know everything about the church. That's why I don't like it that much. And so we're, we're very like afraid of that. We, we try and um, be careful with that. We're, it's very, sometimes it's a hard selling point. We're like, all right, guys, we're going to go to the church, go play on the bouncy house. And they're like, ah, and like four hours later, we're like, you still like the bouncy house? They're like, we want to go home, right? And we're like, yeah, we got a few more tiny things here to do. Anyways, we get it. We can say to it, we can voice it, and we have voiced it, like we're doing too much. And yet, if, as soon as those words come out, we know that there's a selfish tinge in there, and we're afraid of that. 
If you've ever, if you've ever sat here and, and somebody like me has said to you, you know, we think the answer to everything is always do more and more and more, right? Um, if you want to be a, uh, uh, a better Christian, you got to do more. If you want to be a better em- employee, you got to work more. You got to stay more. If you want to be a better boss, you got you to read more. You got you to lead better. You got to do more, more, more. Our answer is always more. Uh, and then so, so then what happens is a, a, a pastor like me comes and says something like this to you, and, and you automatically think, the requirement or the expectation is to do more, and then paralysis sets in, uh, and, and it, you can think to yourself, all right, I think I can rally one more time. Like, I think I can get this up. When's that event? Like, put the little dates on the screen. I'll see if we're available. We'll try and shift some things around. I'll try and find some babysitting. We'll go down to the soup kitchen. We'll do our thing and make it happen. And the entire time, you find yourself, in the back of your mind at least, thinking, boy, this yoke doesn't feel easy, and this burden doesn't feel light. And so then when we read about Jesus saying that and talking about how my yoke is easy, my burden is light, we like snicker to ourselves. We like laugh and we like, I mean like, not the church I go to, Brent, or, you know, or Jesus or whatever. There's, I'm not equating myself to Jesus very carefully. I, I, sh- I should clarify that. Um, but we can think that that, uh, that doesn't feel like the world, the world that I live in. So in order to speak to that and to offer a defense to that, because immediately there's a reaction and I want to be able to speak to that reaction. There's a story that shows up in scripture that I think is really important that I want to walk through. It probably a story that, that if you grew up in church, you're somewhat familiar with. In fact, there's even a song that's associated with this story. And some of you who grew up in like Sunday school, like when you were little kids with like phonographs and everything, you're going to like know this story. But there's a guy named Zacchaeus. And I don't know if you know this, but he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, Right? Some of you guys are singing it right now. Right now you are. And the other people, you're like looking at that person going, you are so weird. How do you know that song? Psst, we went to the same church together, you guys. That's how it happened. Um, so uh, I won't sing the song for you because that's really the only part of the song that I remember. And so I would just have to move on from there. But it shows up in Luke chapter 19. The story of Zacchaeus only shows up in the book of Luke. Just fun fact for you. Um, not in Matthew, Mark, or John. Um, but in Luke chapter 19, here's the introduction. Here's how it, it happens. And this is the only time he is here, too. He, like, disappears after this. But Jesus entered Jerus- uh, Jer- Jericho as, and was passing through. This is verse 1. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, that is Luke's way of feeding in, like, the negative perception of what's going on. Now, um, we oftentimes uh, have a, uh, like a feeling towards people who can be wealthy. Like when, when, people are, when people claim to be wealthy or when they say that they're wealthy or whatever, like they, it can go either way. When you're hosting a fundraiser, you want to be friends with them, right? But when you're just trying to do everyday life with them and they keep talking about their money and their career and how much money they make and what they drive and what they wear, it's kind of like an off-putting thing, right? So Luke knows this. It's in there for a reason. He's trying to set the stage for the persona that is Zacchaeus. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. He's short and he's got this thing that he knows is like not great, so he does some things to prepare for it. And this is smart. This is what, this is what people who have something and are really cunning and are smart do. Like I had a friend named Rich Ward. He was uh, uh, deaf in one ear, but I didn't know it for like the first two years um, because he would show up five minutes early. He would tell me this. I show up five minutes early to any sort of meeting and I always get the seat closest to the wall and put dead ear on that side of the wall so then we can have a conversation and talk. 
And then, the, then like this other time, I, we got mixed up in the seats, or I showed up 10 minutes early to his five minutes early, because I, I hate when people show up earlier than me, because it makes me feel weird. So uh, then, uh, then he, he's doing this like lean-in thing, I'm like, and then he has to explain it to me. And it, it took me like two years to figure this out, because he's smart. He thinks ahead. You plan ahead. When you're short like this, when you're deaf like him, you plan ahead, because you want to avoid it. You want to make it look natural. This is totally natural. I always climb fig trees. Uh, and yet, he's obviously got something going on. All right, verse five, it says this. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. He invites himself over. Kind of odd. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. Now, uh, this, we know that like, if you and I were to go out for coffee uh, or a meal, it's not like a like a big deal. You've met and done meals with people that you don't really like before, and you might meet with me, and you're like, I don't particularly like you, but you're the pastor. I should probably take you out to coffee, right? Um, in this culture, you didn't share a meal with people you didn't respect. It was more of a social status thing. They would have to be at least equally on par with you from a social status standpoint to do meals with them. You just didn't interact with those types of people, all right? Um, and so for, the fa- for, for Jesus, knowing that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, uh, meeting with him and inviting himself over to the house would have ruffled some feathers. And we know this to be true because in verse seven, here's what it says. All the people saw this and began to mutter. All the people, everybody. In other parts of scripture, there's a lot of muttering going on, but typically it's like the Pharisees muttered because they didn't like the fact that Jesus was stepping on their toes and he's got a bigger crowd than they had. Or the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both again, religious leaders in that area. In this one, everybody. Jesus has a crowd. He's, he's, he's popular. He's kind of the it thing of the moment, which is why Zacchaeus goes to great lengths to kind of see what this whole thing is about. And then he gets this invitation and of course he's gonna take him up on it. And all of the people begin to mutter. And here's what they say. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. They've moved it from the category of tax collector and wealthy person to the category of sinner. And the reason for them to do it is because we, they had the same feelings that we kind of have towards people who are in the tax collecting business. Ugh. You know what I mean? Like if you work for the IRS, you do whatever it takes to not have that come up at any dinner party, Right? You want to delay that announcement. You just, you talk about how when people ask, so what do you do for work? I work in the government. And when they like keep asking questions, you're like, in the financial sector. And then let's just move on. There's a really nice house. Congratulations on this beautiful home, right? Let me change the subject in this way. Now, that's today. We're kind of, we get it today. There was a special viciousness towards tax collecting in that time frame. And here's the reason why. There were no bank accounts. There's no banks. There's no responsibility from your, their employers to be able to send their W-2s off to the IRS to make sure that, that the taxation is accurate. There was no uh, bank account savings deposits. There was no retirement. Here's what they, we know that they make. Listen, the government has a pretty good idea nowadays what you make. Back then, there was, no, there was no paper trail in any way, shape, or form. So in order to effectively tax people, you needed to have people on the inside, well-connected people who were willing to sell out their friends and acquaintances and who knew where the wealth was. Somebody like Zacchaeus. Rome would find somebody like Zacchaeus. They would assign him authority, give him a title, back him up with like the military penalties if you don't do something right, elevate his personal wealth 
to the point where he wouldn't really want to lose the job. Listen, we, if you do this, I know you're selling out some people, but you're going to be so wealthy, you're not going to want to lose this job because where else would you find this, this sort of wealth? And demand that he sell out his longtime friends and acquaintances, use whatever connections he has for the benefit of Rome so they knew how to tax people effectively. A guy like Zacchaeus would go to the Roman officials and he would say to them something like this, now that guy has 90 sheep up in Bethlehem. I know it because uh, I've known the family for years. You'd never know looking at him and the way that he dresses and looking at his house, but that man is loaded. He can handle the tax burden. You should make him pay more. So the Romans could tax him all the more. On the flip side, he might have those exact same people, those exact same acquaintances come up to him and say, listen, please don't tell Rome about my 90 sheep up in Bethlehem. And he would say things like, all right, well, what's it in it for me if I was to not do that for you? And then we engage in some sort of a bribery and then he'd probably sell them out anyways after taking on the flip side. He would be extremely wealthy, oftentimes taking advantage of the situation and his own people group which was, it's repulsive now to think of like the gross nature of that sort of thing. Can imagine being in that situation and, and, and he knows enough about your family to know that you've got a little bit of wealth tucked away that Rome probably doesn't know about. Now, that's who Jesus is dealing with. Now, this next verse, this next line shows up, verse eight, immediately after Jesus says, you know, come on down, we're going to your house. And then the, the, the muttering takes place. It feels like, um, like Luke doesn't in, in, inject in there a timeline, like in a few months later. I, I don't think it happened immediately. I don't think that Zacchaeus' response, as we're going to read, is like five minutes after being with Jesus or after the initial meal. I, I actually tend to think that there is probably a long-term relationship that begins to be set up. Like they meet for dinner and they're like, hey, this is cool. We should do this again. And they actually do this again. And then at some point, Jesus uh, introduces sort of a convicting message about Zacchaeus and his life. So, so tell me what you do. So, so you take money from, from kind of both sides. So you kind of play the course a little bit. So you like kind of sell out your friends a little bit. And he's like, well, I mean, I wouldn't call it that. Well, what would you call it then? Well, I'd call it uh, fiduciary creativity, right? Or something like, and he's talking himself out of this thing or trying to make this thing work. And, and Jesus says, well, have you thought about, and I imagine that all of that has taken place, all right? So we're going to jump forward in time. I'm, I'm, I'm probably maybe reading too much into it, but I don't think so. Because look at what Zacchaeus says in response. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, again, a title of authority, Lord would have been not Jesus' name. We oftentimes think of Lord Jesus Christ, like uh, title, first name, last name. It was just Jesus. The Lord was like a, like a, a position of authority in my life. So I'm, I'm recognizing you as an authority in my life. He stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. Listen, you don't do that just because somebody was walking down the street and go, hey, we should do dinner at your house. And then automatic, like this divine conviction, half my stuff. That doesn't happen. Something transpired, something took place, some relationship happened. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Wow, look at him, half my stuff. If I've taken one, I'm paying him back four. Now check out Jesus' response to this. Jesus interjects right here. Jesus said to him, four times the amount? What are you, crazy? How about everything you stole plus a little interest for good measure? Now that, that's, that's not actually the verse, you guys. I'm so sorry. Like, you should, you should probably read your Bible more. Um, that's, because there's some people are going, oh, that's pretty brilliant, Jesus. Nice work. 
Excellent. You should uh, come work for my CPA, right? No, no. Here's what he says. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. He doesn't stop him. This is the crazy idea that Zacchaeus comes up with. Like half his stuff, half his income. Imagine choosing to, to, to give up half of your income tomorrow, all of your, half of your retirement, half of your home, half of this, half of whatever, half of your personal wealth, all the stuff that you kind of keep track of on your phone. Every once in a while you log in and see and be like, still there. All right, feeling good, right? We're not on path where I want to be exactly, but we're getting close, whatever. Half of it gone in that moment. And Jesus has the audacity to be like, yay, good job. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. By the end of the story, we never hear of Zacchaeus again. This is it. This is a small little window of fame. And this is Jesus's response to his claim. Now, verse eight is where we, I really wanna land on. That's kind of Zacchaeus's response. But I do wanna address some concerns about verse nine for just a minute. Um, because there's the phrase in there that says salvation has come to this house. It can kind of make it sound like Zacchaeus earned favor by something that he did, okay? Well, salvation comes, we, we, we are familiar with the term salvation. We, 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 uh, we think about it in terms of um, uh, saved and not saved. We think about it in terms of somebody comes forward, they say a prayer, they fill out a card, they raise a hand, they do something. And I, I came in the building, I was not saved, and now I'm saved, and now something you know, happens in, it, eternally in that way. So that's our vision of, uh, that's the framework by which we think of the word um, saved in this way. And so in this case, it feels like he kind of earned it. Like perhaps Jesus came to him and said this convicting message. And Zacchaeus is like, all right, I promise I'm going to pay back everything that I owed people. And Jesus was like, eh. and he's like, plus interest. And he's like, eh. how about two times what I get, what I stole from him? Getting closer. Three times getting warmer, really warm now. How about four times? And then Jesus is like, congratulations, salvation. You know what I mean? That's, a, and that's not, that's not what's taking place. Here, so let's let's uh, we we've got to get beyond this point. In fact, I'm going to go a little bit deep into something that's like a little bit of a, a word study. And for some of you, this is going to be like, ooh. For some of you, you're going to hate this. And uh, I'm sorry, put up with me for a half a second, okay? There was a, a Hebrew word in the Old Testament called shalom. It was the goal of all good pro, good and proper Jews. We want shalom in this world. We want God's peace. We want God's wholeness. Uh, we want things to be set right. The problem with the broken world is that it lacks God's shalom. It lacks God's peace. The problem with the climate change that we have is that we're, we're lacking shalom. The reason our marriage is falling apart is there's no, there's no wholeness, there's no fullness. Shalom was the, the word. It was like a universal word for the divine way that things should play out as ordained by God himself. So if you go, and shalom's kind of a familiar word, even if you go to uh, Israel today, they'll have like bumper stickers that say like shalom, y'all, right? And so it's like, we're, this is what we're about. We are about God's shalom. I'm a part of making it happen in my life. I wanna be a part of institutions, social institutions that make it a part of the, the, the life of, of us as a civic society. We, we would be better if we experienced a high level of shalom. So that's a Hebrew word. Now, um, after Jesus kind of came and did his thing, um, a, a few hundred years later, uh, they are realizing, the church, early church is realizing, okay, we've got these Hebrew scriptures that are in a language called uh, Hebrew, but that is not the language that most of our adherents are speaking. They're speaking either Greek or Aramaic. Um, so basically, if we're asking people to come and be about our religion, they also have to learn a language uh, to be able to make sense of this. So what we're going to do is we're going to translate the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language, 
okay? Um, and so in doing so, they required, like any translations, well, what does that word mean? Well, that means kind of this in this language, but everything gets kind of lost in translation if you've ever tried to learn a new language. Like there's not a real defined way to say that, but I can kind of get there by saying this. When it comes to the word shalom, that's exactly what takes place. There are three different ways that the word shalom was translated into the Greek. Um, one of them is soterio, teleos, and irene. Um, and I'm probably pronouncing those incorrectly, but that's what, I've, that's what I read this week. Okay, so um, this one right here, soterio, means that's the salvation piece. The soteriology is called the study of salvation. Um, and that's the word that is used in Luke 19 to describe salvation has come to this house. So Jesus, I don't think as he's saying as much of congratulations, Zacchaeus, you are now saved, as much as God's peace has finally come onto this house, this wholeness, this fullness, this way of doing things as they were originally ordained to be is now happening. A peace has come upon this, which is great. This is what we kind of all want. We all live with the lack of, of peace sometimes, which is why when I said you need, you know, we, we immediately think I need to do more, I need to do more, because I live with a, a lack of peace. I've, I've got all of these things, and I've been blessed in, in so many different ways, and I'm so thankful, and I'm not sure how to, like, respond positively, so I'm doing my best, but I'm, I live with uneasiness about not doing enough or doing it for the wrong reasons, or I'm not sure where I stand with you, and so I've got a lack of peace in this way. And in this way, the affirmation that comes is Zacchaeus experienced a peace knowing that this is what I'm supposed to do. Salvation has come to this house. So it's not something that he earned. That's critically important to understand. And then he goes into after that, and he says, this man is now a son of Abraham, or uh, he is a son of Abraham. The very thing that Zacchaeus gave away in doing this whole, I'm going to you know, rob from my acquaintances and my people group to give to these outside oppressive Romans and for the, the tax situation, that basically was selling his soul. And so many Jews would be like, you're not, even, uh, you're not even a Jew. We're like excommunicating you from the community. And Jesus stands up and publicly restores his sonship back into the circle with this kind of redemptive process going on. So to be clear, this isn't about earning God's salvation or earning his favor. And notice that Zacchaeus doesn't wallow in remorse for what he's done. Neither does Jesus stop him mid declaration when he begins to say, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give half of my stuff. And you're like, hold on, hold on. You don't feel bad enough about what you did. I'm, I'm ready to hear your confession. You may now tell me what you want to do. He didn't do any of that. Not that there's no place for confession. There is, but in this sense, Zacchaeus understands love is something that I do, not I feel bad for what I did. That probably took place. We don't have that part of the conversation. But my guess is, through the process of conversation, that course would have been taken, that he would have felt bad and had confession and, and talked about it and conviction about it. But what's recorded for us, what Luke felt was most important, was the piece of him deciding that there was something I should do about this. That love is something that I should do. I should take half of this and give this thing up. He asked himself the question that every one of us has to ask, especially for those of us who are still reeling, again, from the pressure or the burden of adding more and having that be the simple answer. He asked himself the question, and he set it up with context in the same way that we should set this thing up with context. With everything that I've been through, with everything that I've done, with all of the things I have, with all the things I don't have that I thought I might have at this age, 
with my level of education, with my current work schedule, with my current role being a parent of young kids, with my current role being a high school student, with my new freedom of being an empty nester in this season of life, with all of the money and the resources that I currently have, considering the fact that I don't have much material wealth to speak of, what does love require of me? And if require feels like a too big of a word, what does love elicit from me? What does it drive me to do? In this situation, with where I'm at, what should I do now? What should I do with this? Or another way of saying it, what would it take for me to respond by choosing to wear love? If I were to respond in love, what action would be expected of me? Now listen, this is fantastic because no matter what, oh my God, I'm so busy. My schedule is so packed. Time is the most valuable asset that I have. Absolutely, totally get it. Please don't think I'm asking you necessarily to do more, although some of us probably can be challenged to do more. But in this way, this is a fantastic a, a, a question to be asking ourselves. And not only that, to have people in our lives who are consistently asking this question of us. Okay, you're busy. You got things going on. I totally get it. What would love in this situation look like? Because right now you've compartmentalized your life to think this is what I do for work and this is what I do at home and then every once in a while I do this like a religious church thing and then I go over and I do this and, I, and, I, and, and, and not only just Sundays but every once in a while there'll be a soup kitchen Thursday and I'll go because I'm, I'm trying to wear love over here but I never think about wearing love and the way that I parent and the way that I am a boss, the way that I'm an employee. I've, I've, I've refused to kind of take that framework or that lens and shift it over here to be able to do this. And this is what Jesus is asking or encouraging Zacchaeus to do exactly this. When Zacchaeus asked himself these questions, he knew the answer. The answer for him was half his stuff. When God answered the question, it cost him his son. And when Jesus answered this question, it cost him his life. And again, you need this question asked, both by you, but also by people in your life that you have allowed the, per, the permission, you've given permission for them to say, all right, with where you're at, what's it gonna look like for you? My, one of my favorite verses that kind of has been a, a keystone for me in asking this question or, or having it show up over and over in my life is Paul, he writes this letter to this church in Colossae that he had started and planted and, and operates as kind of an external advisor for. Colossians chapter three, verse 23. He includes a... Uh, he has a, uh, a thing called a household code. It was pretty familiar for ancient writers. He would do this in Ephesians as well, and then he would do it in Colossians. Here's what the household should look like. So children obey your parents. Husband loves your wives. Uh, all these kind of different things. He would go through wives and slaves and kids. And, and then he gets to this one, and in a very general statement, he says this, whatever it is that you do, you work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Not for human masters, since you know that you receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And I remember thinking about this. I remember reading this. And, 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 and uh, as a high school student, not even sure what I was going to do with my life. But this has been a, 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 a verse that I may not like, have the words exactly right, but I remember the phrasing. And I, I would say this over and over and over again to myself. Whatever it is that I do. For a while, it was I was working at Red Lion and, and Bus and Tables. Then I was at Olive Garden. Then I got fired from that. Then we move on to some other things. And uh, the entire, whatever season of life that I'm in, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it 
I'm, I'm, try, I'm, I'm experiencing, what, don't, what, do, what do it mean for me to wear love in this situation? What does it mean to put this on? Because we talked about last week, for Paul, and, and a lot of times it was, I'm putting on something. I'm making the concerted effort to put something on. That's why when he talks about the armor of God in uh, Galatians, it's, it's this thing that you put on the breastplate of righteousness. It wasn't like this breastplate that was actually made of righteousness. I'm putting on a righteousness that, that is going to shield me from stuff. The, 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 the belt of truth, all, the, you know, all, the, all of the different items. I'm choosing intentionally to put this on. Why? Because when I'm doing it, I'm not working for them. I mean, they're signing my paycheck and that's a part of it. But I, ultimately, I see the ultimate goal of this. I'm doing this. I'm choosing to wear love because I'm doing this unto God. God, help me. Help me to see in my line of work, in my career, or in my place, in my in, as a student or whatever, I want to be able to wear love in this situation because you're calling me to this. What does love require of me in this way? You guys, the key isn't necessarily to do more. For some of you, maybe it is, but for others, answering the question, how can I do this as unto Christ? How can I shift the lens in how I perceive my responsibilities? So if you came to me and said, how do I follow Jesus? I would say, you do this. Yeah, yeah, that's great, but how do I grow in my faith? You do this. This is what you do. Yeah, but that seems like simple. I mean, it's not like difficult, but it feels really simple. Yes. There are things in life, guys, that are very, very simple. Well, that's so simple. Yeah, but it's really difficult to do. Listen, you know what else is really simple but difficult to do? A Rubik's Cube. It's very simple. It's a cube. My little six-year-old can see that and twist it and do their things, and they understand I'm trying to get all the colors on one side. Now, can they do it? No. Can I do it? No. It's very simple. I get the shifting things. I don't understand. And some of you are like, oh, that's a bad example, Brent. I can do it in two minutes or less. Yeah, but nobody likes you. So <laughs> sorry to, break, to be the one to break that to you. Just because something is simple doesn't make it difficult or doesn't make it um, not difficult. Asking this question could be the most difficult thing that you do this week or this month or this year. With where I'm at, with what I'm doing, what does it look like for me? And who am I gonna give permission to in my life to ask me that question? Not once, because seasons change and lifestyles change, but on a repeated basis. Not every day, don't be annoying text messages guy, but every once in a while. Is anybody speaking in your life going, so, so in, with what you're doing, what is, what's love looking like? What's love requiring of you currently, right now? You guys, that's really big. And we are gonna continue this conversation next week as we kind of go through this series because what do you do with that? What do you do with people challenging you? And, and I, I wanna do the right things. I want it. So next week, we're doing, um, uh, talking about the, the purity of right motives. Because I want to do it, but I want to do it because I want to do it, not because I feel obligated out of guilt to do this, okay? So if you're currently watching The Bachelor, this is a great one. Because this is like, we're going to be here for the right reasons. You know what I mean? That's the first, anyways. Um, and then in week four, we're talking about game plan and how do you piece all this together and actually make sense of it. So please, please, please don't miss the rest of this or at least follow along with us at the talks page. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Zacchaeus, um, for inspiring us uh, as a people, not to like feel convicted about our job and like give our half our stuff away. We, that's not the, the point of it. That, that would be too internalizing for that subject. But that, it's very clear that he 
had to get to a point where he asked himself, with where I'm at, with what I'm doing, what does it look like for me? I pray that we would do the same thing in our life. Give us the wisdom to know what it looks like for us, the courage to do something about it. In your name, amen.